This is Bob Rook with Business Leaders Podcast, and our guest today is Heather Potters. She's the Vice Chairman, Global Business Development Officer, and Co-Founder of PharmaJet. Welcome to the show, Heather. Yeah, it's exciting for me. Thank you. You know, we've been chatting off and on for a while, and I'm so excited to have this time with you this afternoon and get your story out there, which it's already out there, but at least to this through this channel. And, you know, uh, if you could, could you talk about PharmaJet's vision and your vision is needle-free applications for immunization and kind of the story on why you started there and why that's still your focus? Well, we, and we is actually my mother and I who co-founded the business really wanted to make sure that we made a contribution to healthcare. And she's nearly 79 next Monday. And she had experienced needle sick. She'd seen reuse. And there was actually a call to action by the World Health Organization because they were experiencing, witnessing needle reuse about whether or not somebody could develop immunization tool, needle-free immunization tool. And so we decided to rise to that occasion. But when we looked at the market, Immunization is global. We all share the healthcare burden. And actually, we're in the midst of something today around coronavirus where it's abundantly clear that if people are healthy, they're at work, the economy works. And if a group of people are healthy, then the population generally is healthy. So we focused in on what we could do around taking needles out of the garbage dumps and the risk of reuse and needle stick. And then that immunization market that's kind of growing in perpetuity more people being born, more need for immunization. And then if you fast forward to where we are today, the exciting thing is is that over time we've been able to prove that you might be able to move from the muscle to the skin and functionally reduce the dose of the vaccine by 80% and get the same immune response. Pretty nifty. It's around the immunology that our skin has. Our body's barriers are always protecting us from things. And then the other exciting thing is that we kept seeing this glimmer of making vaccines work better. So in particular, in nucleic acid vaccines, messenger DNA, messenger RNA and DNA vaccines, we tend to see a multiple of higher immune response versus needle-based delivery. So there's a whole slew of things, whether or not it's infectious disease or oncology, things coming to market to address disease concerns that we don't have treatment for today. Like on the infectious disease side, it could be Zika and now also COVID. On the oncology side, it could be someone who's manifested HPV, cervical cancer, or lung cancer, or leukemia. So lots of things that, you know, give us joy around near-term immunization, that medium-term reduce the dose, and the longer term of bring things to market that don't have vaccine cures today. I think about just the mechanics of my memory goes back to when I was a little boy. I got my polio sugar cube with a little red dot on it, and we have certainly progressed a long ways since then. For you, with the the jet injection, what role do you think that's going to play going forward in the immunization market? Well, polio is a stunning example because we kind of have that that short-term memory, or, or frankly, the older you are, the more you remember about the polio risk. There were people who were basically going swimming, feeling fine the next day, not able to walk, not able to breathe. Things like iron lungs, you know, in the 50s. And and that's a distant memory for most people. But the oral drops on the sugar cube uh, essentially were discontinued from use in places like the United States because they have a live virus. However, they're really inexpensive. So the use of the oral drops 
has been continued in the rest of the world. And frankly, thanks to the leadership of of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, WHO, CDC, there's been a drive towards adopting those as standard of care to bring the disease incidence down. In fact, if, if you're exposed to polio and you're not immunized, you have a one in 200 risk of getting polio and manifesting some form of paralysis that is irreversible. So given that, that the disease incidence has come down, it's now time to eradicate the disease. And so the injectable and activated vaccine that we use as a standard of care here and in numerous countries has been mostly used in the developing world. And now it's time to adopt that, that safer vaccine that doesn't have the live virus in order to truly get rid of the virus from the planet. So while we're close, by no means has polio been eradicated. But the exciting thing for PharmaJet is that we've been part of this journey, the WHO leading the charge, again, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, CDC, around how to truly eradicate it, but afford eradication. So the oral drops are about 18 cents. The injectable polio vaccine is about $3 in the cheapest of UNICEF pricing, 20 times more expensive. How do you bridge that gap? We are a tool where we've been able to prove that you can move from the muscle to the skin and functionally 60% less vaccine injected intradermally using our device is superior in immune response to a full dose into the muscle. So it took a long time to prove that and that's frankly a credential that the World Health Organization scientific advisory group of experts opined on and, and which we enjoy today. And then if you add further, we get functionally 20% more out of the vials versus needles because we've engineered out all of the waste and then push and click up against the body. Any caregiver can deliver that shot. And then there's no needle sharks to take away, which is also an extra cost. And then lastly, we, we inspire more people to be immunized. So we traditionally find a significant percentage of people avoid immunization because they don't like needles. And many of those people will actually participate. So it's around that herd immunity, more people immunized, moving to the safer vaccine to truly fully then eradicate polio from the planet. Yeah, I think about in the immunization side, there's the mechanical feature. Many don't like shots. I don't know of anybody that said, I just love to get them. But I think also, isn't there some cultural barriers in some countries against needle-based immunization? Oh, there are. And it's such an interesting topic because in the United States, we want it to be safe and comfortable and perfect. Whatever the services that we're getting, whether or not it's healthcare or going off to McDonald's, right? In certain parts of the rest of the world, there are people who actually don't like to see blood, particularly in the Muslim world. Consequently, we have a leg up in, in terms of this non-invasive method of administration. We form a fast fluid injection. So it goes into the body in less than a tenth of a second, faster than your nervous system can respond. That fluid is traveling pretty quickly, and it's kind of the size of, of two human hairs. And you know, if we wanted to call it magic, that would be easier. But we, we basically get rid of that needle experience and the angst that goes along with that, as well as you can't claim that it's pain-free or that you might not see a, a drop of blood or fluid because we do create a small hole 
but it's much less invasive, much more patient-friendly, and certainly caregiver-friendly. And while there are places that kind of pride themselves on if it, if it hurts, it worked, the truth is, is that most healthcare workers don't really want to hurt their patients. It's a much more comfortable way to receive an immunization. And circling back around to that, your mom, was she not a, I think she was a dentist, yes? She actually became a dental hygienist. And yeah, she worked with my father, ran his practices. My dad has three board certifications. He's also retired and, and older, but they did volunteer medicine and dentistry together in various countries. And that's where she she really was struck by the fact that we all take for granted the healthcare that we have here. But if you you live in very simple means, you you make do with what you have. And if you don't have very much, you're probably going to reuse some of the things that you have. And so the whole concept of needle stick and risk of reuse was something that really touched her. I think about the evolution of that. I worked in a hospital early on and when I was in college. And there really wasn't much protocol about disposing of needles. They just went where they went. And then the HIV world showed up and the needle side of the house became much more prevalent or apparent or aware. And I think about this recent issue that we have now with the coronavirus. I'm wondering if that's not a tipping point. There's been an anti-vaxxer that's out and around doing what they do. And I think about a call to arms, I would seem to think, that this will be an amazing call to arms for technology like yours. Well, I appreciate that. And, and I want to make sure that people know that we'll never get rid of needles because they can be important and useful. We just happen to be basically the only alternative for vaccine delivery for needle-free jet injection technology. One, it's around the credentials that we have. The FDA, CE Mark, we're the only WHO pre-qualified technology for needle-free globally. And that covers the, the WHO countries, which I think are something like 190 countries. But going back to kind of needles and legislation, part of why we started as well is that there eventually were laws passed which require safety provisions for needles because there's about a 65% risk for the patient and caregiver that just as you're finishing your injection and in between that moment and disposal, you may have a needle stick. And that needle stick could contribute up to 20 bloodborne pathogens. So most commonly would be things like HIV and hepatitis, but protecting the healthcare workers, protecting the patients from that exchange was really key for you know why it was important to have safety measures. So we're fully safe. We have no needle. We don't require necessarily specialized sharps disposal like needle-based delivery does. The laws that were passed in the United States eventually spread to EU area, Brazil. Every country is a little bit different. But when you go into a scenario where there really is no disposal or it's a field setting or getting rid of hazardous waste ends up in the garbage dump uh, or it's incinerated and it goes into the air, we have a, a bit of an advantage there because we've designed the syringe so that you can't reuse it. There is no sharps. There is no metal to incinerate. And then our injector is really, really long life. So as a system, it's really efficient and beneficial, and all of those economics help flow through to make sure that there's a savings for every single injection back for the user. So in a coronavirus scenario, 
And we're not talking about just the United States, you know, 7 billion people on the planet with a highly virulent virus that's spreading. The objective really is, is to have a vaccine or multiple vaccine solutions for this. If you can imagine, there's not even enough needles in the world, not enough glass vial packaging. There's not enough anything. Pharmagenic can serve a hugely important role to attract needle-phobic patients, make it simple to give care. We're particularly useful in mass immunization settings with the ability to process lots of patients. And we capture 20% more typically out of the vials because of the engineering. We have great efficiencies that capture what waste would normally be in that needle cannula and things. So I think of, of this as a scenario where we all get to participate in, in finding a solution. And we have some special features that make us very relevant. You know, as, as you were commenting, 65% chance of, for the administrator of risk. And so I think about all the people on the planet and just the mechanics and logistics of getting some percentage of those people immunized. And you have the administrator and you go, so if you've got 100 of them, the incidence of risk to each of those. And I, I don't know that it was as the risk to the caregiver as well understood as it is today, because you have a lot of the healthcare givers that are now at risk to the virus now. And Really true, actually. So coming back to that statistic, in the U.S., typically a healthcare worker would need to report a needle stick. A lot of times they don't, but it would be one in seven healthcare workers in a given year would have a needle stick. Makes you wonder what the real number is. Makes you wonder. And then in much of the rest of the world, they might not report it, but in certain literature in Africa, it, it's been determined that up to 50% of the healthcare workers would be hepatitis. In places like South Africa, the burden of HIV is quite significant. So 50% of the patients might be HIV positive. So you start to see that this kind of disease burden issue can be a, a real risk. And so if we can take out the issues associated with those hazards, and then we can add to the efficiencies, we've seen teams of people working together, whether or not it's the US or, or Pakistan or Cambodia, when they work in teams, our technology tends to be about two to three times faster than needle-based delivery. So faster patient processing. And if we imagine a scenario where you might have a drive-by, you know, instead of testing, it's drive-by immunization. Roll your sleeve down, get your PharmaJet COVID shot. We've actually had that experience for, for influenza here. So again, we don't know yet about the vaccine cures that may come about, but we would very, very much like to be part of all of that and playing a role in multiple places, multiple geographies. I think of the mechanical advantage. In the military, I can remember lining up for processing for overseas movement, and they would have all these stations, and you basically lined all the soldiers up, and they would tell you, roll all your sleeves up, shut up, and get your shot. And so they could kind of process you a little faster, but still, it was a mechanically long process to get all that done. And so I think about that a lot. And for you, you're knee-deep in the vaccine landscape, and you know, the difference that exists in the standards of care. What do you see out there and what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, you know, universally people go into health care because they really want to help people and they want to make a difference. There are a few nurses I've observed that are a little bit like the grab and jab, just efficiency and, and mm -hmm. uh, get on with it. 
But in general, people really want to have yeah. a nice, gentle experience, or maybe the, the example you gave is military. Right. <laughs> Line up and shut up. That, that's yeah. not what we uh, want to but I've observed more people standing in the needle-free line versus needle lines. And in part, I think it's for that reason. And there are also sometimes caregivers that positively choose that they want to provide needle-free injections versus needle-based delivery. So while there might be multiple options, the venues are a place that probably want to treat people with dignity, respect, but yet be efficient. So if possibility think for the United States, if you you look at 2009 and H1N1, in most states, vaccines were not allowed to be given in the pharmacies. And today, all 50 states have approved for immunizations for pharmacies. So I think that's going to become a natural venue in addition to public health or other significant locations. If you look at some of the impoverished countries that are really under-resourced, it really will be field settings and mass immunization could occur neighborhood to neighborhood, door to door. We've had that experience in in Pakistan more recently where actually 500,000 children were immunized in five days by 1,100 caregiving teams. So we've proven this efficiency, and, and I think it's it's probably safe to say that we're very confident that we could go into any environment, sophisticated or unsophisticated, and find that we could effectively immunize people and have a very significant positive patient healthcare experience. I think about the, the concept, we're going to go immunize a half a million kids, right? And so you have this preconceived notion, you have your team set up, and then you get the feedback from going through. Were there any aha revelations after doing that many kids with your teams? Well, what's interesting is, is if you were to listen to my CEO, Chris Capello, talk, um, by the way, he's it's a little bit like a co-founder in that he's helped design our equipment. He's just an extraordinary engineer. He had the opportunity to train 50 master caregivers via WebEx. They were in Karachi, Pakistan, uh, in the middle of, of our Colorado night, and the connection kept breaking. So um, those caregivers also had materials in front of them, kind of the self-training materials that we, we've developed over time. But based on that two-hour period, those 50 master caregivers went off and trained 1,100 teams in one week. And then that following week, those teams immunized half a million kids in five days. So that learning just on the training side is invaluable. We designed it to be you know, easy, ship it anywhere, and somebody can take it out of the box self-train with our little practice ball, kind of four or five injections, 20 minutes, and then start immunizing. And then some of the other ahas, frankly, are joyous because the healthcare uh, teams are kind of delighted that I think, quote unquote, the children didn't cry, you know, or, Mm or if they moved, it didn't matter to me because the injection process is that you have to be against the body before the trigger actually will be released and the energy creates that fluid stream. So it's really safe. And then if you're a parent, we've all experienced, you know, when your child is in distress, it's stressful for the parent. 
So consequently, I think there were numerous people that walked away saying, oh my gosh, you know, one, why didn't we always do it like this? Two, I want every immunization to be this way. And I think that's a positive trend because you would want to keep bringing your child back for their immunization schedules if you knew that it was going to be a happy experience versus well, the other side when, when oftentimes the kids go kicking and screaming and it's, it, it's no different than the dog going to the, the veterinarian, right? They know. <laughs> they know. You, uh, I, I was think I was a Navy brat. And so you go in for the Navy care, right? And so you're going to go, oh, I've got to go get my shots. And it was, you're right, kicking and screaming, no interest and in going to repeat the performance. And I think about in the message that must come from all of those children. There's a generation they're going to talk to their children. Yeah. And it's like that Star Trek thing, right? Where if we're old enough, we remember Star Trek and we go, oh, right, needle free versus a younger person who might not know what that's like. But, but their view is, well, why haven't we always done it this way? So I, I'd like to think that we get to that point where it's a little bit like a cell phone. If you never grew up with party lines or rotary phones, you have no idea <laughs> what it was like. You know, I was yeah, thinking about the party line and right. I go, yeah, I remember the party line. Yeah. You know, thinking about PharmaJet's progress and to where your business is today and technology, you've been doing this for a while and you've got a role and what do you think your role's gonna, what role do you intend on playing? Well, science is, is a bit glacial sometimes. It does take tons of time to prove things and what we're experiencing today, by the way, with the caveat of coronavirus vaccine solutions, it's going to take time. We may have a, a solution that we think is pretty great or multiple solutions, but it, it, it does take time to follow the patients, understand protective immunity, make sure that if you need a booster shot that that works. Um, the virus mutates, such that maybe it becomes like the annual flu mix, that we might have coronavirus vaccines annually going forward. So, you know, science, again, takes, takes time. But I, I would say that if you look at the last decade of our development, where we've amassed so many first and onlys on a regulatory basis, scaled our device platforms, completed multiple clinical studies with exe existing vaccines, we're entering into that era with our novel portfolio moving forward where I think we have uh, 67 human clinical studies underway right now, more than 50 collaboration partners. So that's large pharma, small pharma, academic, NGO, and government institutions like the NIH as an example, or up with foreign institutions as well. The roughly up to 100 novel vaccines and therapeutics moving forward, while that may take about a decade of time to see several of them reach commercial state. Maybe the earliest is a couple of years from now. I really envision that will become a, a standard of care because in many cases there, those injectable medicines are not working well with needles. The, the job of a vaccine is to improve the antibody response and our fluid injection somehow does that really, really well. So if we're several fold better than needle-based delivery, it, we're finding that in, in nearly every case where the, these candidates reach the human clinical testing stage, needles are dropped altogether. So we become the named and likely the only method of administration for those injectables. 
So PharmaJet has a real role to play and I think will occupy a really distinctive place in the future as these new treatments come to market. And that's kind of my vision for the next decade on novel things. But wouldn't it be great to look back a decade from now and say there isn't any more incidence of polio to find that the basic health care in, in the world that includes measles, all kinds of infectious disease, that we've actually eradicated one or two of those diseases. WHO priority is polio, and then secondly would be measles. I just think about the landscape. I can remember talking to my great aunt about the Spanish flu. And I talked to a guy out of Kansas, not long ago, PhD type, and he said the Spanish flu actually originated in Kansas. And you go, well, why wasn't it called the Spanish, the Kansas flu? Anyways, <laughs> but I think about the experience of flu, we have a tendency to think that pandemics and flu strains, maybe, except for you, you're in the field, are not that prevalent. Yeah, we got the flu, so what? But I think going forward, I suspect we'll have this transmission for whatever reason on a regular basis. And you look at it and I think if there was ever a wake-up call, we have one. That is for sure. There's been concern behind the scenes with governments for a long time. And Mr. Bill Gates himself has made it very clear that that's one of his biggest concerns. The, the concept of a pandemic, which means global, ends up being derived from a vicinity. So if you look at influenza, a lot of the influenza strains start in Asia, particularly China. And as time goes on during the course of a year, it kind of morphs and moves and changes because we're all sharing that disease burden. We're on different airplanes. It mutates. And by the time it makes it to the United States, we have a flu mix that we think is about right to kind of protect us. If you look at the risk of Arctic circle melting disease in the tundra that we've never been exposed to in our lifetimes. No one has protective immunity against whatever that may be. If you look at animals and the, the fact that in certain cases, disease viruses jump from animals into humans in the coronavirus family, SARS is thought to be associated with civets. MERS is thought to be associated with camels, and COVID-19 is thought to be associated with bats. Coronavirus is the common cold, but within there, there are several areas that historically weren't something that human beings experienced. But again, this kind of close proximity to animals, travel, mosquitoes coming into places that have never been before. Zika would be a great example where about four years ago, we had a real scare that mosquitoes bringing Zika were coming into the United States and spreading the disease. And by the way, they determined that that's sexually transmitted. And it went in, in one year through all 48 states with the exception of Alaska and Hawaii. So I think we're going to see waves of concern and whether or not they reach pandemic stage ends up being associated with surveillance in various countries uh, trying to restrict travel, like around the Ebola crisis. Sometimes certain things are carried in water supplies. It's hard to transmit the water supply, but if it's carried by humans and gets into another water supply. So I, I don't mean to be a doomsdayer. I'm, I'm encouraged by the amount of, frankly, collaboration around this pandemic, because I think it's going to change how science works and the ability to potentially fast-track solutions that are, are really incredible disease threats our populations. But it, it is important that, that science continues to be 
well-funded and innovation is supported because it does take a long time and a lot of money to bring things to market. I was thinking as you were talking about herd immunity, right, which sounds like a bunch of cattle, but <laughs> I mean, which may be a better analogy than we think. So if you have, let's say the, the vaccine is administered and PharmaJet's doing their thing and in, in, in vaccinating, I think about herd immunity without vaccination and then the curve herd immunity with vaccination and the tipping point. I don't know what percentage of the population would have to be vaccinated before it really started to make a difference on spread. Because if I'm wandering around out there and I'm vaccinated, so I'm not spreading it to any quantity of people. Have you seen any work on that where people are trying to model what that looks like? I have. And I think it's kind of important to point out that in certain cases, you don't have it and you don't share tissue fluids, you can't get it. Hepatitis would be an example of that, or HIV would be an example of that. But there are many things that are respiratory illnesses that are spread, and measles, uh, tuberculosis, influenza, our coronavirus crisis right now. So if the disease is circulating frequently, so let's talk about influenza for a minute, it tends to be that if 65% of the population is healthy and immunized, then the rest of the population is generally healthy. But there are certain diseases uh, or viruses, or respiratory illnesses, that have a higher spread rate, where therefore the protective immunity level relates to how many people are immunized. In the case of measles, it's typically about 90%. In the case of polio, it's 95%. So we don't yet know what it will be in coronavirus, but given how quickly this has, has spread and mutated, chances are pretty high that we're going to need to see very widespread immunization for a good long time to make sure that the disease is arrested. I don't know that it can ever be eradicated. That's the difficult part. Well, and we've not been able to get rid of the, quote, flu, right? This year's flu vaccine is the blue one, and next year's the green one. Well, did it work? Well, not perfectly, but it was better than not. Right. And so I just suspect in the days when we didn't have travel like we have now, cruise ships, airlines, it would take, like the Spanish flu basically got to Europe with World War I, as I understand it. And, you know, had we not had all the troop ships and all that, it might not have been as big a deal as it was. Right, right. And that was then and this is now. And we have such tremendous commerce and are so connected that it does allow for de disease to be borderless. Yes, it's democratic, isn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, you know. It really is. Yeah, it doesn't matter who you are for PharmaJet. And you you guys have been knee-deep in global polio. I think about where do you see you guys on that scale? Are, are you getting close to getting polio done in the world? Or what's the biggest barrier to you getting that done? Well, you know, again, the oral drops have been able to bring the disease incidence down to a handful, a few hundred cases per year that have been reported. Wow. Which is really, truly extraordinary. However... The poliovirus lives in every sewage and water supply in Pakistan, as an example, an endemic country. So it, it requires a lot of coordinated immunization for a very long time, along with probably infrastructure investments in, in sewage treatment and things. And yet, there is vaccine-derived polio. So despite that these oral drops are, are helping to bring the disease incidence down, every once in a while... An individual immunized manifests. Hmm. Oh, 
So truly, you have to fully move to the inactivated vaccine to eradicate that disease. And right now, the current thinking by the World Health Organization is after the last polio incidence example has been observed for at least a couple of years, they only then will completely destroy the stockpile of oral drops and move to the inactivated vaccine. And we'll need to continue to immunize for at least a decade or two before they will declare that polio is eradicated. Wow. It's a generational project. It is generational. Maybe in the water supplies. And just to call out that it's not just polio, but there's a family called enteroviruses. Those viruses live in the human gut. Polio lives in the human gut before it gets into the water and sewage. So in certain water supplies, there are specific enteroviruses which do cause paralysis but they're specific to those water supplies. So so the enterovirus candidates, it's a whole group, kind of like the coronavirus family. There are enterovirus vaccine candidates under development in different parts of the world. Polio is horrifying, and and it, it frankly was in most all of the world half a century ago. It's been vastly, vastly reduced now, but that last mile of eradication is important. Smallpox is the only other disease that's been eradicated from the planet so far, and polio will be the second. Yeah, I just think as a kid, what was it? Um, wasn't it down in Georgia that Roosevelt went to to quote treat or deal with his symptoms? Wasn't that where he went? And I that's what I remember as a kid, and I can remember get going through the process. I can remember my parents were excited about it, and as a little kid, you kind of I don't know, but I think about now for you guys. You know, we, we were talking about a little bit earlier about the significance of the reduced dosage use when you guys are administering a vaccine. What do you think that means and what does that mean to PharmaJet? Well, you know, it gives us a huge competitive advantage because to, to inject into the intradermal layer of tissue, which is about one and a half to three millimeters of space, to do that with a needle is really hard and it's very painful for the patient. And we've designed our technology that it's a simple push and click, basically up against the body. You, you release the trigger and it's done faster than your nervous system can register a response. So it's really comfortable. We don't take the sting out of whatever is being injected, but it's a huge competitive advantage versus needle-based delivery. In part, people can't deliver the needle-based delivery, but in part, we would all like to have a more pleasant experience. The faster patient processing, clearly, uh, we've had time trials and evaluations in places like Gambia and Pakistan where individuals working, not teams, but individuals tend to to be three to four times faster than needle-based delivery. So again, we won't fully eradicate the use of needles, but we certainly have a huge competitive advantage. And then not to mention, or not to exclude, I guess, the economics around that, If we're able to reduce the dose by moving from the muscle to the skin, in our case for polio, 60% less is superior to a full dose. We also then functionally get 20% more out of the vials because we've engineered out the waste Mm -hmm. of typically you would experience with needles. So that plows back a positive return for every immunization. And there's been health economists that have documented their view of the savings that we create which is about 30% for every single PharmaJet needle-free injection for polio. So full dose into the muscle versus PharmaJet's injections into the skin, 
that 30% savings ends up paying for the cost of the equipment. It creates a sustainable model for these countries to adopt to afford essentially eradication of that disease. You know, we, I'm sitting here thinking, I said, so it's faster. It works better. Culturally, it's acceptable. What's the pushback? For me, I'm sitting here going, oh, I'm Captain Obvious. Why isn't everybody doing this? <laughs> well, first, I guess, because polio vaccine would be in multivalent vaccines that we use as standard of care here. It's not a single single vaccine. We're not using intradermal polio vaccines in the United States. So it's really much of the developing world. In fact, there's there's a World Health Association vote that every country agreed, 151 of them, that they would migrate from the oral drops to the injectable vaccine. But the economics has taken a a toll on how quickly this has come to market because really, truly, it's it's a big financial hurdle for many of these countries. And then there just frankly hasn't been enough injectable and activated vaccine supply until last year. So this wow. decade of development around this plan to eradicate the disease is really just kicking off commercially now. And that's why I, I say sometimes science is glacial. It takes a long time to prove clinical studies it took us at least two years to scale our technology and complete our audits before we could start producing our product. And now we're engaged with multiple countries. Many of them are Gavi member countries. Gavi stands for Global Alliance Vaccine Initiative. Okay. It's funded by the Gates Foundation and the 15 wealthiest countries in the world. And they support these immunization costs with these impoverished countries that need financial help to, to adopt something as standard of care. But kind of the deal is that those countries agree up front that if they have those subsidizations after several years of immunization, they're on their own. So we're engaged, frankly, there right now with inactivated polio vaccine in a fractional dose using our device with more than 20 countries that are engaged in these Gavi applications to, to make it a standard of care in their, their country. So, Bob, if you give me the opportunity to tell you all about it about a year from now, I'd say that we'll be in multiple additional countries than those we've already experienced. And I'm excited about the, the example in Pakistan because the first opportunity was a little field assessment. The next opportunity was... 500,000 children immunized in five days. Nothing like a small leap. Yeah, this year it's we actually shipped product in early March because there was a plan to immunize 1.5 million kids in a week. So it, it will start to mushroom and grow, and it'll be a, a joy to kind of share what the outcome of, of all of that is. And also, it's not just big countries. We've had experiences in places like Cuba, very high standard healthcare system with tremendous nurses, we were involved so far in 33 clinics for the last year, immunizing all day, every day, their patients coming through for standard routine immunizations. And now Cuba is moving forward to adopt it as a standard of care for the country, which is really exciting. So both cases, small countries, large com countries, we don't care so much about venue. We just want to make a contribution to health and well-being and safety and savings. Now, PharmaJet is a for-profit business, so don't get me wrong. And we need more investment in order to continue to feed our development capacity. But the fact that it's a win-win for everyone makes us essentially a, 
a sustainable business model. We can do well, we can do good, and we can create returns for our investors. I just think about the economic benefit. Nowadays, maybe some folks really didn't have, if if you're a caregiver for an Alzheimer's patient, your life is dramatically and forever changed and so on. And if you're a caregiver right now for somebody with COVID virus, your life is different and changed and they're segregated in your house and you have to behave differently. And I think about polio. I can't imagine. It's a lifelong sentence. The person with polio is impoverished unless they're incredibly fortunate. And I think about that economic improvement or value. You know, it's, it's also really true. There's very high correlation, sadly, where disabled children tend not to have the opportunity to go to school and therefore tend not to have the opportunity for gainful employment. So if you can imagine what your life would be like if your child could not walk, right, it, it would just be devastating. There's statistics in, in all kinds of categories. Same, same with autism. If your child is highly autistic, it destroys the fabric because yes. Stressful, but particularly important is just the, the need to be functional, which allows people to be educated and allows people to work. And that is universal, regardless of degree and circumstance. Yeah, ignorance is incredibly expensive, which is a fair understatement, I'd say. In looking at PharmaJet and with the pandemic, how do you see you guys fitting in with this current pandemic issue challenge? Well, it's you know, something that we've been kind of working on quietly, and I don't want to overpromise that we're going to have the solution, but we're part of 14 separate pharmaceutical developments today for coronavirus. Um, so in, in February, we had a check-in with BARDA, who are in charge of pandemic preparedness. We were already working on pandemic preparedness for influenza with them and the FDA, and that quickly turned to coronavirus. So there are multiple innovations going on. Some reported 100 candidates in the world, but we have several partners that are working in different approaches to the vaccine development. We have multiple partners in different geographies. So, you know, U.S., several in Europe, Middle East, Asia, and it's potentially an opportunity where anything that, that gets to the stage of proof of concept, we could include PharmaJet as a alternative method of administration in that clinical study to demonstrate that needle and needle free are the same so that we can be part of the solution, let alone potentially being able to reduce the dose. Many of our novel vaccine development partners find out that the immune response tends to be very similar with both of our devices. So 0.5 milliliters injected into the intramuscular space is very similar to 0.1 ml into your skin. And so functionally, if we could stretch the dose by 80% and get the same immune response, and if we can also utilize the fact that we eliminate waste and get an extra couple of doses out of that that vial and plow back that positive ROI or immunize more people. It, there's a lot of development coming that we're, we're really excited about because we really intend to be part of the solution. I just think about back to my mechanics, takes less, goes in faster, don't have to have a highly skilled administrator. The risk of administration is lower. You think about the compound effect of all of that, if you get 5% here better, 
2% here better, 3% faster here. And all of a sudden you start looking and multiply that by millions of individuals. It gets incredibly compelling. We can save a lot of money and we can immunize more people. And that is absolutely true. When my mother started, she related how in healthcare, it always has to be cheaper. Always has to be cheaper. And you're always looking for the innovations to save you money. And as, as much as we're not relatively very expensive, it's not very dissimilar to, to a needle, at least in terms of U.S. pricing, we've been able to effectively compete against five-cent needles in the rest of the world and still save 30% on immunizations. So the, the cost of the vaccine is a much different scenario. Huge manufacturing scale-up costs. And oh my gosh, if we could stretch the dose, either they have to manufacture less of it or they can immunize more people. There's always this win-win opportunity in, in our view. And, and I want to just touch on the fact that why has it taken so long? Well, the truth is, is that I don't think that the, the vaccine manufacturer loves us when we tell them that we can get more doses out of their vials or reduce the dose. Like in the case of polio, we are not on the, the vaccine labels for the vaccine companies, but the WHO cares a lot about the cost of that eradication. So I think in, in this circumstance, we will find that because we facilitate vaccines coming to market, because we facilitate more people showing up and participating and, and reaching that herd immunity level, and then stretching the dose, again, whether or not it's more vaccine out of the vial or, or intradermal versus intramuscular, I think that we'll set the mark of being able to prove that this needle-free capability is, is really important to the true cost of healthcare. We, we can play a role, and again, we're not going to eliminate needles, but we can play a really, really important role. Well, I just think about the psychology of any family. No, and it says I've got I got my vaccination today. What did it feel like? Uh, what do you mean? <laughs> I, I walked you know, in. But some people walk away and they say I didn't feel that. In some cases, it's a little bit like a rubber band snap, but it's pretty comfortable. Well, you know, I, I just think on the the expense to the economy worldwide right now. Yeah, it's an ROI for the world, frankly. And you know, and this this is not the first one. It's not going to be the last one. It's just going to be an ongoing issue. And I suspect that the wisdom of the crowd working all on on vaccine development. I suspect there's going to be some ahas that come out of this that will likely speed up development of vaccines. At least I'd like to think so. You know, I'd like to think so too. But one thing I should call out is that we've been supported by high net worth and family office investors to date, and I come from a private equity background historically prior to PharmaJet. And when the world crashes, unfortunately, certain funding mechanisms dry up yep. and others replace them. So in the case of institutional investors, many of them are so worried about their existing portfolio and the impact of this coronavirus scenario on those companies and their survival. So we continue to be supported with high net worth and family office investors. We certainly have institutional interest, but it's kind of, it's, it's critical that people understand that there's a lot of empathy with what we do and why we do it. We're absolutely oriented to be a sustainable business and a profitable business eventually. But I think that there will be more groups, multilaterals coming in to fill some of those funding gaps because it's enormously important to support the health systems and make sure that the infrastructure doesn't fall apart 
because of lack of investments. We need our healthcare workers. We need the, the venues. Uh, and that's not just the United States, but in, in the rest of the world. So I'm confident that innovation, not just PharmaJet, in this scenario will continue to be funded. But, but government funding today is, is probably some of the more important funding because it's, it's a much larger initiative that's, that's being coordinated among multiple jurisdictions and multiple technologies and multiple agencies like the FDA. I've been, I've been harassing you off and on for two years, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and well, you've been so busy doing what you do. I'm honored that you came on and I'm real appreciative and, and I'm so excited about what you're doing. So to wrap this up, what do you think the future of immunization is going to look like three, five, ten years down the road? Well, it's funny because I don't think you harassed me too much, but I kept saying, not yet, not yet. We have really good things to tell you. It's going to happen and we'll have the opportunity. I think actually immunization will become more mainstream in some of these untraditional venues. So again, going back to the fact that in 2009 with H1N1 here, we didn't really have immunization in these pharmacy chains that are on every street corner. There are uh, those developments in multiple countries today that we probably will see become important venues. I also think that there is some creative thinking along the lines of how do you make it important and expedient for the patient? So rapid immunization versus routine immunization. I really do hope that people's awareness around immunization is that it is standard of care. Besides clean water, it's the cheapest form of preventable health. So instant immunization is probably key to U.S., Europe, some of the the more developed economies, but being able to make sure that it's standard of care, routine immunization, and that PharmaJet's part of that so that we inspire immunization and keep people safe is is really what I think is going to happen in the next three years of time. Well, Heather, I hope so. And again, I'm so appreciative of you taking time to to come on the episode and tell us your story. And I look forward to doing this again here as you get down the road and more things come to pass and there's some updates. We'll take and do this again, but um, I wish you much success. And again, thank you for taking your time to, to come on and be a guest on the show. I'm oh, delighted, Bob. Thank you. For before your- I forget, how do people find you on social media? Well, LinkedIn for sure. Uh, we have a PharmaJet LinkedIn page, and you can probably look up Heather Calendar Potters and, and find my profile. We have a, a robust website with lots of training materials and then contact information for whoever you want to talk to, whether or not it's our clinical team or our sales team. Those are the two easiest avenues. And then YouTube. We have a host of uh, YouTube videos to show you what patient experience is like, as well as training and use of the device. So I hope people will have an opportunity to, to either reach out or learn more about us in that way. Well, again, thank you so much for taking your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. All right, Heather.